This is Indie Live Radio and it's the Yes Group Spotlight Series. This week we're listening in to a meeting that was organised by the Aberdeen Independence Movement back in February this year. The meeting is called What Now for the Fishing Industry? It's hosted by Karen Adam, who at the time was a prospective candidate for the Bamshire and Buchan Coast constituency in Holyrood, and she's since been elected as a member of the Scottish Parliament. Karen is talking to Elaine White of the Clyde Fishing Association. And of course, there are plenty of questions from the members of the Aberdeen Independence Movement. Uh, those of us here at Indolive Radio just want to say we really appreciate the Aberdeen Independence Movement folk for letting us rebroadcast their meeting. So it's just about to start. Here we go. Okay, we're all good. Can everybody hear me well? Yeah. As you can see, nodding, nodding heads, so that's a good sign. So hello and uh, good evening and welcome to this AIM event where we will be discussing what's next for the fishing industry. So I'll be hosting this evening and I'm Karen Adam. I'm the SNP candidate for the Bampshire and Buchan Coast at this year's Scottish Parliament elections. Um, I will be joined this evening uh, by our guest, Elaine White, who is a, a representative of the Clyde Fishermen's Association. So um, I'll just start off by saying, you know, over the last few months, we have seen the, the disappointment and unlegitimate concerns and anger from our fishing industry and also broader really across our, our whole um, fishing communities. So, you know, many are feeling a, a sense of betrayal uh, and voicing that they feel that the, the Brexit deal is worse for them than the CFP was. So I'm really grateful actually to, to Elaine for coming and joining us this evening. And as many people perhaps um, know, you've, you've heard a lot in the media about the Scottish fishing industry, you know, these last few months um, as, as maybe one whole entity. But there are many areas within that and also the West Coast, which Elaine represents and the East Coast here have within them their, their own unique areas and their own unique challenges. Um, but we do share some commonality in regards to exports and, and Brexit deal challenges. And I think it's a good opportunity to gain a basic understanding, firstly, of what our industry looks like, um, the, the, the different working parts of that and the differences between the Northeast and the West Coast, and also but what commonality brings us together and where we can go from here. So, um, Firstly, before we get going, and if, if everybody is happy enough to indulge me, I'd like to, to ask you, Elaine, um, you know, as a woman myself, in a male-dominated environment, um, it can come with uh, some challenges. Um, but I'd like to say, as coming into this arena, you know, newly coming into this the, the fishing industry arena, I've been treated um, really well with respect, regardless of my politics and, and you know, nothing against me for being a woman. Um, I haven't faced any negative attitudes, but I'm curious to how, you know, women are seen within this sector and, and what, what was the appeal for you? Let's get to know you a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny because it's one of the first things that anyone asks us uh, it, it, all the time. It's always, well, you know, you're a woman in the fishing industry before anything, before the policy aspects of it. Um, and to be honest with you, it's been like working in any other sector. Um, except potentially, I enjoy working very well. They're, they're great characters. They're, they're, they're great men. 
The one thing I will say is that you have to work a shift. So if you're able to work as hard as they can work, then there's no there's no odds. Um, I've never in any way felt anything but respected for, for what I do. And I appreciate my colleagues for that. Um, they do a hard job and I respect them um, to the point where, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of preconceptions about fishermen. Um, a lot of them really not true. Um, so it's for me, it's certainly been a privilege to work with professional, hardworking men that are decent sorts. And that's yeah. that's how I've experienced it. Um, cool. Oh, in terms of what, why I wanted to come into it as well. Um, I've always loved the sea. <laughs> My family came from the coast and, and that's why I was attracted. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. I wanted to ask, because I think, you know, it, it's important to try and encourage more women, you know, into this industry as well and see. Obviously, you can't you can't be what you can't see, you know, and it's always important to to make, you know, women visible in in certain areas so people can think, oh, there probably is a part for me to play in that and to be encouraged to go in there and to know that it is a welcoming environment um, as well. Yep. That's, that's great. Yep. Thank you. Um, so... For everybody here today, and I know we're going to be having quite a few people here who are very familiar with the fishing industry, but maybe some who aren't so. Um, so just to ask, what are the main parts of the fishing industry? What, what are the different sectors? Okay, well, firstly, you pointed out that I'm from Clyde Fishermen's Association, so I'm the West Coast um, and, and, and inshore mainly fishing. Um, but also I'm a member of CIFA, which is an inter uh, which is a national body. Um, so we have quite a lot of Northeast members and East Coast members in that as well. So we, we, we do cover the, the, I think we've got about 430 plus boats um, and that's all over Scotland. Um, so in terms of the differences in the sectors, you'll, you'll hear the main differences being obviously the, the inshore and the offshore. Um, so the inshore largely being within six or 12 nautical miles, depending on your classification that you use and offshore being outside 12 normally. The different types of fishing that happen mainly um, are what you probably hear is shellfish, pelagic um, and whitefish are, are the main things that we, we kind of talk about. Um, so shellfish largely happens in the coastal areas. Um, it's, it's what people who maybe are non-quoted tend to go for um, in coastal areas. So lobster, crab, langoustine, that type of thing um, that, that, that they go for. The whitefish um, is obviously largely like haddock, cod, those types of, of things. And that's quite often your demersal boats that are going into the North Sea, etc. larger boats and whatnot. Quite a lot of inshore communities don't really have an awful lot of quota for, for, for whitefish. So they tend not to go for it in massive uh, amounts. Some will. Um, pelagic is, is your mackerel, um, your herring, that type of fish, your oily fish. Um, and again, the, we've got quite a lot of larger boats that go into the North Sea and beyond that, that, that are fishing for, for, for mackerel. And that's your main distinctions, really. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, it's maybe worth also talking about gear type, actually, as well, because um, in terms of gear type, um, there's a few different types you can get. You can get the trawl. Um, so you get things like prawn trawl, etc. Um, you get static gear, uh, which is your pots, your creels. You get line fishing and you get um, you also get net fishing um, and you get your divers so there's there's quite a different there's a good selection of different methods of fishing too 
Yeah, I think I think that's what, what some people get a bit confused about or how the media can sometimes portray, you know, the Scottish fishing industry and it's all lumped into this one entity and they just assume these boats are just going out having a catch, you know, coming back. But there's so many various, you know, aspects to this. And of course, we have the, the processing sector as well and the markets too. So, I mean, there, it's just, there's quite a lot to learn really if, you, if you're just, you know, upping your knowledge on this at the moment. Um, so... If we are going to, to compare east uh, and west coasts, what are the main differences between the two? Okay, I wouldn't compare, uh, the way I see it, a lot of the east coast inshore communities are very similar to the west coast inshore communities. So um, if somebody's got a small, you know, a small trawler or, or a small creel boat um, working out of Peterhead, it's not much different to a small boat in the west coast or a small boat in Dunbar. Um, you know they're very similar they've got the same probably the same markets etc the probably the main difference between the northeast and, and maybe the west coast etc would be the larger boats um the white fish boats and the pelagic boats in the northeast that, that, that have a, a different type of market um but if you're talking about comparing shellfish boats all around the inshore, inshore coast they're the same no matter where you are and more or less in, in in the whole country so, so we do have some commonality there, of course. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. So going on to Brexit, you know, so this is what people really want to be talking about and getting the bones about as well. In regards to the deal, what did that mean for those individual sectors? How did that how did that affect them, you know, within their own remits and allowances? Yeah, well, I mean, speaking for our own sector, firstly, we were very concerned from the start. Now, we took a non-political and non-constitutional stance, you know, we just need to roadmap what all of these scenarios mean. Um, and, and the first thing that we were generally concerned about was our markets, because about 86% of our, um, our produce of shellfish goes to the continent. And there's various reasons why the domestic market isn't very advanced um, to do with infrastructure, to do with marketing, various reasons. So we were very, very concerned about the fact that we would be losing our markets. And we, we raised that. We were also concerned about tariffs at the time. Um, so the tariffs we were looking at was maybe about 12.5% if it was WTO. Now, they never happened. Um, but but the major concern was, uh, now, now we're, fe we're feeling that the major concern is obviously the process. Um, because in terms of, of the paperwork that we need to, to export, it's very extensive. So we're in real trouble with that really at the moment. Yeah, we've been hearing quite a lot about the, the different types of paperwork that need to be available. I know that we were hearing um, at the NES um, FTP or last Friday how it's been quite difficult. Um, you know, it, it's a forever moving kind of goalposts in regards to health certificates, um, for example. You know, they'll get over there with, with a consignment and then be told, oh, this is the wrong ink or, you know, and, and yeah. you've been a problem as well in regards to, you know, some consignments on the, you know, the lorries are, are, are fine um, and their paperwork's, you know, all well and done. And then one, it just has, you know, it doesn't have what that country needs for it, for it to be exported there. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of problems. I mean, I think that the, the main issue is that we didn't have a six-month grace period and the EU will have. 
so in terms of the, the, the system going live from day one, we found out that the system for actually putting, you know, there were certain species were missed off the computer system. Some people yeah. were insisting in a certain colour of the ink. It was it was just really very complicated and, and remains so. And you're right about the groupage. Um, with the larger catchers, they maybe only put one lorry away. So they have one, you know, the paperwork can, they can do all of the paperwork. But the, the difficulty comes when you have a lot of small consignments coming from all over the country which then becomes a bit of a, a problem because um, you're reliant on someone's paperwork, you know, someone from Tarbert's catch is going away with someone from, you know, St Andrews, and it's just one thing that can be wrong that causes a massive delay. Yeah. I know that something, something that, you know, I hear quite a lot about and, um, you know, one of the reasons why there was this sense of betrayal uh, and, you know, real feeling of betrayal within the industry was the red line that was set and that was, you know, um, to do with their zonal attachments. Can you explain a little bit to, to people what that means? Yeah, of course. Um, again, we kind of have to go a bit back a little bit <laughs> because how quota was actually started, it started to be allocated um, on track record, etc. way back when we joined the EU. Some people had a lot of track records, some people didn't know they had to get it, so they didn't, they missed out on the allocation of quota. And ever since the allocation of quota um, has been something that some people protect, some people contest about the shares of domestic quota once it comes, you know, how, how do we share that out? Um, so I think um, for anybody who was potentially looking for Brexit to say that they wanted to see better fishing opportunities, sometimes it might have been they wanted to see better domestic management because a lot of, a lot of this, those small boats that can't catch any fish um, that, that could have potentially been looked at domestically, but it probably wouldn't have been discussed without Brexit happening or it may have been a long way off. Mm -hmm. So they might have just wanted to see themselves getting a little bit of quota so that they could diversify the fishery away from just shellfish. Yeah. Regarding the larger boats, um, probably they, they spoke about a sea of opportunity. Um, we, we hadn't really saw a sea of opportunity. We never did. Um, but that sea of opportunity would be um, obviously the zonal attachment. So zonal attachment means basically that you have access to the fish in your economic zone. And we have quite a large economic zone. There's a lot of species that stay within that economic zone largely. Some of the species go between different areas, but it was felt that most of our fish, um, over 60%, was going to the EU and less than 40% was going to our fishermen and they wanted to see that rebalanced in some way. Um, when we did join the EU, um, there would have been about eight other countries with common grazing rights. It moved to 28 countries. Mm -hmm. So some people felt, well, now we now it's a different, we're in a different scenario. We'd like to see a, a fairer balance. Um, but again, that was probably more the larger boats that felt that way. Um, so the, uh, in terms of relative stability, that's more about the, the share that the, the EU gives to each of the countries, not based on the zonal attachment. And that's that's why. We, we got 40% where they, they got 60. So that's so that's why we've got the issue with relative stability and zonal attachment. So do you, do you see this, this problem? Is there any unique challenges to us here in Scotland or are the, the fishermen across the whole UK facing these similar challenges? Is there anything that's unique to us? Um, I would say that there's things that are unique to different elements of the sectors. So again, like I said, we may have an insured boat in the west coast of Scotland that has more in common with um, a boat down in Cornwall, mm -hmm. an insured boat down in Cornwall than it would have with maybe a larger pelagic boat or a whitefish boat in the northeast, maybe even. Um, you know, so it, the things that are in common, I would say that the the men that work the channel 
and the south coast potentially have an issue with access between French and Dutch boats, etc., um, because they can come in inside and there's a, there's a sharing of space there, and that, that maybe is an issue for them. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. not been so much of an issue for the west coast. Right. Um, what we do tend to see, but I, I have had members text me at quarter past three in the morning saying that they're they're wet and they're freezing cold and they can't land a box of monks because they've got no quota. But there's Spanish boats that can or French boats that can or Dutch boats that can. Now, I have some sympathy with that, but a lot of those boats are actually UK registered. Um, so, I, I, again, I think it was more about looking at the domestic share of quota if we could have done that and we can potentially do it now for the future fishes management we might be able to to help in that situation but the deal we've got isn't very encouraging for that at the moment yeah yeah absolutely so you know we're, we're hearing quite a lot about you know this is for the next five years you know stick it out for the next five years but in reality you know five years is quite a long time um I know it does pass quite quickly for some of us more than others. <laughs> um, but the reality is, you know, when this is your livelihood and when this contributes quite a lot, you know, to our coastal communities, um, you know, in terms of job, you know, work opportunities, um, particularly, you know, for for younger members within the communities as well. What opportunities are going to be there for people like within the next five years? How how are we going to get through that um, what do you foresee being the, the biggest issue? And well, it would be a great change. I think obviously the stocks that people hoped would come back, maybe some of the larger boats had hoped that they would be able to pursue, are not going to be coming back. In fact, they're probably going to have a worse deal um, in terms of they, 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 they had more access when they previously fished than what they will have for the next few years anyway. That's clear. So that that's 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 an issue. Um, I do think that the UK government have talked about hundred million pounds to reinvest in ports. Um, if that happens, I think we have to be careful where we put the money, and um, we do have to be looking at new opportunities. We do we do need to be looking at all those ports around the the coast that maybe haven't had any support in quite a long time, as well as the larger players too. But hundred million is not a lot when you start to think about. I mean, I certainly know in our area. I've got fishermen who couldn't actually go and catch fish because they wouldn't have access to any f- ice. There's no ice provision. Okay. Um, it's it's that bad, or they don't have davits to help them lift. Um, you know their catch. It, there's those kind of basics that we just don't have. Yeah. Um, and we really need to do be. We've been kind of. I would say we've been kind of sea blind for for an island. We we really need to be looking at reinvestment. Um, and for a lot of the people who are coming in, I mean. Uh, certainly I, I know regional areas where a lot of the skippers had had daughters who didn't want to go into fishing mm-hmm. and that's actually led to a generation of fishermen lost now traditionally you wouldn't really go to a, a, an employment fair or anything like that you just your son or your nephew or whoever was around about the harbour would find their way back on a boat that way we hadn't been good at professionalizing how we get people into the industry yeah. um in certain areas anyway so I think we really have to look at getting new people in. And I, certainly, I like the scheme that Denmark did, which was become a fisherman. Um, and they, they they invested a lot of money into TV campaigns, tra- formal training campaigns, etc. And, and they actually managed to repopulate a lot of depopulating areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to start thinking, I think, a bit smart about how we do things differently. Um, I'm very fond of the Norwegian model. It's very fair. 
Um, you know, it has a an annual intake of new starts. You know, it looks at how they can support the, the, those many quotas as a national asset. Very fond of that because a lot of young people coming in wouldn't have wouldn't have had the baggage of the issues of the previous system, and we need to look at how we do it better and build it up all around the coast. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I really I like that idea of you know some PR around that because. You know, there, you know, there's a great there's great career paths within the fishing industry. And, you know, to have that young blood coming in and getting them interested within that, um, you know, building on it and um, seeing a bright future in it is really important. I mean, we, you know, in the northeast um, with the with the pelagic boats in the processing sectors, there's hundreds of people that are employed within that. And it's just a, a massive opportunity Um you know, for people to get involved, but it's encouraging people into it. And I think some people have a, a certain idea of what it would be like. Um, and, you know, maybe a fear as well, if they watched a bit too much Trollerman or, or whatever, and they, you know, but it is, a, it can be an extremely, um, you know, dangerous job, you know, yeah. it's a dangerous job. And um, I think there needs to be a lot more serious recognition for that. Um, yeah. I, I don't think we see enough of it, really. Um, and- no, I, I, I think, yeah, I completely agree. And I think my job, and there's, like I said, the processing plants, there's 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 a lot of people employed in places like Lanarkshire, nowhere near the sea, to process catch from the northeast, from the west coast, from the east coast. Um, you know, and all of those people feel they're a little bit invisible in the story, and they shouldn't be, yes. um, you know, because there's so many reliant people on it. And I do think... To be a fisherman, my heart goes off to them because you have to learn how to do your own accounts. You have to learn how to be a businessman. Mm-hmm. You maybe have to do it in a southeasterly gale at sea while you're catching fish as well. Um, the pressure on them is, is extreme in a lot of cases. And I do think we need to... I go to other countries like Norway and Spain and Italy, various other places. I see how they revere their fishermen in a way. I'm not suggesting that that's what we have to do, but I think we, we do have to have a respect for it because I think um, there's a lot of, we have a lot of campaigns again that are very anti-fishing and a lot of the small communities are, 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 are facing that and most often the most sustainable communities. And we really have to turn that perception round about and let fishermen speak to people and give them access to, to the public. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're an island, you know, this is part of our, our real culture and our history and that really does need to be celebrated. And also, you know, how do we fit that into, into modern times as well? Yeah, um, yeah no, no, that was great. And something else, you know, we've been, you know, talking about the, the Brexit deal and I talk about it quite a lot. But in regards to the, the funding to help with, with the challenges of that, um, you know, a few questions have come up in regards to what we used to um, what we used to get from from the EU and in you know it, how does that compare to the funding that we are now going to be getting from, from the UK government um well I think it all depends on what the criteria is going to be um so we previously used to get things like flags we got EMFF um sometimes the criteria it was good it fitted what the diversification of boats those types of things but sometimes I think a lot of the funding probably didn't go towards projects that were very much needed in certain areas um I think I heard of a project at one point that actually was um from the fisheries fund that was to put up pontoons for leisure boats 
and actually stop the fishermen getting into their port. So the, there's there's issues like that that have happened. So it's about how we can do that a little bit better. So it's not always about lots of money, but it's about how you, you tailor that to the regional area. I think it's really important. And um, so if your area has got depopulation, how do we look at employment? How do we look at maybe, you know, how do we look at upskilling work? Maybe we need workers to come from a different area. Maybe we don't. Maybe we just need to work with the domestic population. So I think it's it's about how we use that money. In terms of the amounts, we know that there's 100 million coming in specifically for fishing. There's also a shared prosperity fund, or I think that was what it was called, which may may be accessible as well to fishing. I don't know. We, we don't really know at the moment. So it, it really depends. But I think the key thing is not always just the amount of money. It's it's um, how it's tailored and, and who, it's, who it's aimed at, I think, is going to be really important. Oh, I know... Um... You know, we've had that double whammy this year as well. We've had the COVID pandemic and that really did have a huge detrimental effect on the industry, um, you know, before before the, the 1st of January this year. And how are we looking in, in that regards? How how are things looking for, for the fishing industry? How What are the, the main issues there? You know, we're hearing of boats that are still maybe um, tied up, for example. What? Yeah, it's not it's not good. Um, in, in, in many respects, COVID's probably been the, been the biggest um, hit because what it did was it, it weren't, fishermen are always planning ahead. So they, they fish maybe in the summer to say for the winter when the weather's bad, etc. So you might you might have a feast or a famine depending on what time you, you're in the seasonality of fishing is important as well. So what happened was if, if the fishing boats had any resilience, they used that resilience up for COVID. So when when the when their EU markets closed down, they you know they they used that they were still trying to pay their crews etc. Then when the domestic markets closed, maybe they were selling to local hotels etc. That's been really obviously a problem too. So my my issue I think is that the resilience they now have to deal with the issues with Brexit is is much reduced, and then also we might see um, issues with the negotiations that we're having. Um, with with other countries and as I said we're going to have to negotiate with the EU and with Norway and with all the third countries in terms of um, access to stocks and we don't know how we're not going to have the same flexibility that we had to do that during the year we used to be able to do that all during the year it's going to be more limited now Um, and it depends on those negotiations if we get what our our fishermen need and if they don't get what they need it will have a knock-on effect all the way around Say, for instance, you might see that a fleet can no longer go to a fish stock, so they might go to a shellfish stock instead, and that might impact the market. So although you might be touching on one one fleet, it has a trickle-down effect to the whole market for all of them. So, yeah, I mean, right now it's it's not good. I know some boats that, that still haven't really been out for months, months. And obviously I don't see the boats. I see the families behind those boats yeah, uh, and the hardship that they're going through in terms of paying their mortgage and paying their crew. Mm-hmm. um it's it's yeah it's hard yeah it's it hard. is it's a, it's a huge knock-on effect because you know we'll hear with, with employing so many people as well there's not that um you know not er- being able to earn that income and be able to spend you know locally as well within local businesses and right. you know, it does it's just the, the knock-on effect the domino effect um ripples throughout everything as you say it's, it really absolutely it really does so yeah. going from that, you know, talking about the, these are the hardships, the issues uh, and things that we're facing in, in you know, in the, the West and East Coast and gone over the what the fishing industry looks like. What what can we do constructively now? How 
how can we help our fishing industry? What can we, you know, trying to think positively for the future? What are the practical things that we can be doing? Well, I think as a general public, if there's been a great thing that I saw, although it's not happening to the, the level we'd like to see it, is obviously direct selling's been happening. Um, people have been going to their fishmongers and they've been ordering fresh fish, you know, the, you know, the freshest fish you can get, or they've been queuing up next to boats to try and, and buy something. So I think, of course, do that. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's Thank you so much for doing that, everyone who has, um, because that's the difference between a family getting by and not getting by. So we really appreciate that. I think raise awareness beyond just mainstream media. I think I've seen a lot of preconceptions about what fishermen think or what all fishermen think or how they all behave or what, what. get in touch with us. E email, go onto our website, get in touch with us. I'm always happy to speak to anybody about the, the conception because it, fishermen are like everyone else in society. They, they, they have different views. My members have different views mm -hmm. and we, we don't, we're, you know, it, it might surprise you um, how, how they think. And also from different sector to sector, it varies. So mm -hmm. I'd say get in touch with them. I'd say also one of the biggest threats that we probably see as a fishing community is um, a lot of the kind of organised campaigns that we see against fishing. Right. Um, and I don't know why, uh, you know, it's not an issue in Norway. It's not an issue in other countries. Um, we are all for sustainability. I think that's really important to say. We're, we're very well managed. Um I think we, we would always hope to, to do better, but you know, that's that's where we're at. Um, but there's a lot of misconceptions going about. And I've heard a lot of people saying to me, oh, you know, one type of fishing is good and one type of fishing is bad. That's not the case in our eyes. A mixed fishery well managed is the best way to 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 do business, we feel. Um and I think, you know, ask a, a few questions. Don't just believe everything on Facebook. You know, if you speak to yeah. your fisherman, he'll tell you. He'll tell you how many, he will tell you how many legislations he has to comply with and what they're doing for bycatch and what kind of gear he uses for selectivity, those types of things. I think that's really important um, because right now there's there's literally millions of pounds a year pouring into Scotland from these campaigns and it's really, really detrimental to fishermen. So speak to them um, and, and find out what they actually do. Um, and I think also maybe just... Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see a situation where we, we do have better facilities on the port because a, a busy harbour is actually good for tourism. It's good for it's good for all sorts of things. And like you said, the corner shop stays open, various, you know, the, there's there's local businesses thrive from that. So I'd like to see us coming to a point where we actually respect fishing as part of our heritage um, and it's something that can be economically vibrant. And I think the Norwegian policy is a light on in every coastal village um, and town. And that's what I'd like to see. Um, that, that we're allowing the new the new people who have never got on a boat yet but might be great fishermen an opportunity to professionalize their industry um but i think yeah just public support come and speak to us you know come we do a lot of festivals things like that you know i know that there's one up in peterhead now as well you know get along speak to the men because you might you might learn a lot i'm sure you would <laughs> I think it was really important what you said there, you know, about not getting education off of Facebook. And I think that goes for everything in life at the moment, doesn't it? It, um, it really does have a, an effect. Everybody has an opinion on everything, but not necessarily understanding what it really involves, what it entails uh, and everything else behind that. So I think going to, the, to those sources that are credible sources is so important to, to understand that, particularly if you're from 
you know, a, a coastal community or a fishing community, you know, under, get to understand your area, understand a bit of that history, the culture and how it works for the, for the fishing industry at this moment in time as well. And as you say, you know, everything that they have to comply with too, um, you know, and, and get behind them. And, and if there is, you know, not everybody's going to agree on everything all the time, but if you do have concerns about anything, you can talk that out and, and maybe you've got something worth to say that people want to, to hear and listen to. So I think absolutely there needs to be a, a better communication there and a, and a better understanding of how, how it works really. Yeah, and I, I think fishing has been such a, it's been in the public, it's been such a high profile thing and it's been a case of everybody thinks the same, everybody does the same. And it, it's not reflective of the reality I see. No. I see fishermen that think all different ways are in all different sectors of all different types of businesses, um, you know, and it, and it's just speak to them because you will see that there's, and I think it's a shame that maybe some people are, they're feeling a bit misunderstood. And, you know, whether you supported Brexit or you didn't support Brexit, they may have reasons as to why they did whatever they did, whichever way they done it. Um, certainly the CFP hadn't, in a lot of people's eyes, been been successful in every element yeah. it might might have been in some might have not been in others but they'll have reasons why and and speak to them and like you said it's through discussion and debate that we can get to a situation that maybe works better for us as a country yeah I mean I know myself coming in it from you know a, a politics angle you know where I also hear you know that they're sick of being used as pawns and you know used within this um political debates um, so to speak, speak uh, and pass back and forth and they really just need their own genuine voices coming across as to what they actually want and not what anybody else thinks they can do and put on to them you know it's about empowering that community and, and what they want and and you know we'll have to understand as, as well why people voted certain ways and voted for certain things I know myself I was maybe perhaps a bit tentative in the beginning because there is that undercurrent of, of you know people say oh you know that that's a that's a, a, a fishing fishing coastal community there. Are you sure you're up for that? You know, the fishermen, et cetera. And I thought, all right, okay, is there something that I should be worried about here or something that, you know, quite a fearful attitude. And I have had nothing but, um, you know, great communications, open communications. Yes, I've had disagreements, um, but there's been nothing that's been disrespectful at all. And it's really been a great learning curve for me, actually. And they're willing to help me understand what you know issues they are facing as well, because ultimately they want people to listen to them. And, yeah. and you know, that's that's the important thing. And uh, you know, there's nothing to be fearful fearful there at all. Absolutely. No, not. no. And I think as well, I, I spoke to a journalist today, and we we're talking about how some fishermen felt about. I know a lot of fishermen who didn't vote at all because they just don't because they they, they, they maybe not they said they are not that way they they maybe are quite free thinking people who like to be at sea or they like to, so you know I think it's quite difficult you know for they're practical people generally clever people practical people yes. um you know and I think it's yeah if they see an issue they might you know we can only address it together by talking to people and for people to understand why they might have a problem or why they don't have a problem etc so yeah no just speak to us I think that's the best the best thing we can say we do a lot we try and do festivals where we work with young kids who go out to schools um we also have things like burns nights where the public can come along and speak to to, to sit at a table with a fisherman and learn a little bit about his job and it's fascinating it's fascinating people are interested um yeah. and, and we love doing that type of work 
so absolutely I, I was hoping to get out and about a bit more but of course you know Covid's put paid to that a little bit so no no hair nets and, and no sea legs for me at the moment um but I am really looking forward to it you know look, looking ahead there um but also there, there can be uh there can be an absolute you know a bright future there can be a real bright future for, for the industry, but it takes a lot uh, of different people to come together to be able to make that happen and have those honest and open discussions. Um, I think that's really important. We've had a question in. So I'm going to turn to questions. If we've been blethering for that long, people want to get in with questions. Um, so I, I don't know who this is from. Um, I don't see our name to it, but it says, has the UK government not confirmed the EU will not end until 2023. EU funding, was that a typo, until 2023? And why all the eggs in one basket with 85% export? What is it with the balance of import-export markets and fission? Okay. Right, so that's a couple of questions. Um, yes, there are deadline dates to spend the EU funding for the ones that they still have. I believe there's like a 33 million that the UK government said is still unspent. Um, I think they're working at the moment in what that will be allocated to, but um, I can't tell you at the moment. I don't know. Um, but obviously that will have to, to, to be spent by that time. So we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll hear soon. Mm -hmm. um, regarding the export markets, as I talked about before, some people um, haven't traditionally had a lot of quota and it's very difficult to get access to quota. Um, quota is expensive. Licenses are expensive. They can sometimes be more expensive than the boat. Now, that's not the way it works in some other countries. Some other countries like Norway, they keep it as a national asset. You must have a boat to get quota. You're allocated it annually. Um, and they also have a separate allocation of quota so that they can give that to new starts every year. It's not like that here. Um, with our quota, um, a lot of it, you do get some non-sector quota, which some people can use. Um, but the most there are some community quotas as well in places like Shetland and I believe Orkney and the Western Isles had a certain amount too. But in most places, it's very difficult to get fin fish, etc. So the markets were traditionally built around the EU for a number of reasons, because actually the taste that they had more of a taste for shellfish. And that was what our guys could catch. Mm -hmm. So they got the best price, you know, and, and, and that was. But I do think that was 40 years ago. And I do think our mar the EU markets will always be important to us. And I think that's really, it's yeah. important to say, we want to protect them as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But I think we're now in a space as well where people in Scotland and, you know, other markets maybe are appreciating the quality of our shellfish mm -hmm. and that we can try and, and, and do more domestically as well as maybe internationally to market that. Mm -hmm. Some of the issues I do see with that is some of the communities are quite rural. Um, so we need to think about how we change our domestic or, and our international supply chains. We need to get um, better connections, transport, etc. Um, and as I said, our processing facilities can be pretty poor in a lot of areas in Scotland. So we're going to, if we want to try and even do more domestically or internationally, we need to get processing facilities all around the coast that, that are fit for purpose. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Link. It's really, really interesting. Um, I have another question here and I'm going to open this up to questions now if anybody wants to come in. You can either put it in the chat or you can. Is there a stick up your hand function or just put on your video and wave your hand? Um, but you can you can voice it as well. You don't have to you don't have to put it in the chat or if you want to hide, you can. Um, so Neil Cameron asks, would a dedicated 
Scottish Government Minister for Fisheries be beneficial to the Scottish fishing industry? Well, we, oh, I'll let you answer. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, Fergus Ewan has been a very good fisheries minister. Um, that's that's my view. And I do think, though, sometimes you can, um, that it's very important. It's a very complex area, and I do think we need as much resource on that as possible. Um, I think, you know, sometimes there can be contentions between aquaculture and fisheries, you know, wild fisheries, particularly in the West Coast, not so much in the East Coast. Um, you know, so there, there may sometimes be issues there um, when, when ministers have a couple of briefs. But I would say, by and large, we have a very good fisheries minister. Um, and I think that's a, a view shared across the, the sector mainly. So, yeah, that's that's what I hear. That's what I do hear quite a lot. Yeah. Does anybody else have any questions they'd like to ask? Or comments even if you have something to say can't see anybody yeah andrew is it yeah hi ellen um i work for the scottish salmon producers organization so we've been working with yourselves and with uh, the likes of jimmy buckin as well and donna for dice to to try and get export moving to market um and one of the things that things that jimmy buckin has been talking a lot about is the, the over-centralisation at TFDS Lark Hall and the need for something similar to that on the East Coast. Now, I used to work in Shetland for one of the salmon producers up there before moving to SSPO. And if you consider that you've got to get product, whether that's from fishery or from aquaculture, overnight on a ferry, potentially gets cancelled from the weather to Aberdeen, and then it has to go to Lark Hall to be processed. And the freshness of, of aquaculture produce and fisheries produce is so important. Do you think there is a need for investment in the Northeast, whether that's Dundee or Aberdeen, for an, another facility to, to expedite this process? Because it's something I've seen a lot of talk about, and I think there might be a need for it. So I'm interested in your perspective. I think there's a need for a rethink all round, actually. Um, because just as you're talking about, um, actually, it's easier to get from Peterhead to Lark Hall than it would be from Campbelltown to Lark Hall. Um, on the roads, it's probably about three hours um, at, at driving from Campbelltown. So I, I completely agree. And at the moment, even with our processing facilities, like for Scampi, for guys are fishing for tails, it has to go to Northern Ireland at the moment and then has to come back again. And there's going to be issues with that once the grace period finishes. So I think it's a case of looking regionally at where all of our areas are and, and trying to build capacity. So if it's needed in the Northeast, it might free up a little bit more for the central belt. But like I said, our guys are probably just as far away and in a lot of respects too. So I, I do think there's a need to look at that and process and facilities across the board. Like I said, some of our guys don't even have ice to land to um, for, for produce. And we can't diversify our fisheries if we don't have anything um, harbour side. And what we find is a lot of times people, you know, we, we've got a colleague um, in St Andrews who managed to raise funds for a fisheries hut and they'd traditionally been a fisheries hut there. And it was just to save safety equipment um he got the funding through flag which is a, the emff um type schedule and then they didn't get planning permission because they were frightened that it might ruin the aesthetics of the harbor although there had always been one there mm -hmm. and i think there's we need to raise that awareness that actually we need a space for fishermen can't as much as i completely everyone wants a nice executive flat next to the harbor but we need to be thinking about the facilities that will make it work as well and not exclude them 
Um, so if they need a processing plant or they need a, an export hub or whatever they need, yeah, we need to be looking at that closely across the board. So infrastructure is certainly something that's going to be, that would be top of a, a wish list, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. For sure, for sure. And it's not always massive. It's not, it, it could just, it could be a, a very small investment could make a huge difference to how we do things. Okay, I have a, a question through, um, is this from, question from Facebook. Uh, does boats, do boats landing in Denmark show that being a coastal state in the EU was actually a good thing? That's a question. The boat, boats had always landed in Denmark. Um, and, and I believe a, a few years ago there was there was some work to look at socioeconomic link of making sure that more of a percentage of the catch could be landed in Scotland so that the ongoing um, profitability attached to that would be linked more to Scotland. I think it's something that they might look at again. I don't know. Um, do I think it means it's better being in the EU? I, don't, I think it means um, we have major issues at the moment and some boats are able to do that. And so it's a better economic, it makes more economic sense for them to do it. But you must remember that a lot of 10 metre boats and 12 metre boats coming out of the same port are not going to be able to do that. Um, and, and we certainly have some boats who are landing to Ireland as well, which is closer to them. So I, I think we need to be very aware of the regional um, disadvantages that we, we, we may have at the moment. And we need to be thinking about how we address them for sure. But it did happen before. It's not a new thing. It's just a thing that might be happening more often now. Yeah, and I mean, we, you know, you know, coming from the northeast, we want landings here. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we want, you know, we want to be able to to keep our, our you know, processing sectors open, running, uh, and buzzing and full. Um, so, so anything that you know brings brings as much of that landings into the northeast um, is is better for us. Um, Okay, here's another question came through. Uh, oh, and this is from Mary. Um, I'll call her my Mary. Is there anything can be done about fishers selling their quotas to other countries? Significant parts of the British quota have been sold off to foreign-owned boats which sail under a British flag. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that that's, if I'm being honest, that's probably more of an issue for down south. Okay. Um, quite a bit, but of course, if they can fish in, in Scottish waters as well. Um, but it's more of you, you see more of the flagship boats um, down south having went that way. In Scotland, it's different. We have more of a few companies that are Scottish owned um, that that that, that kind of have have most of the quota. I guess um, you'll have seen a lot of coverage of that. Um, I certainly think we need to to reevaluate what we do with any new quota coming in. And the Scottish government have said that they, they will be doing that with any new quota coming in, new mm -hmm. shares. Um, I think longer term for the new people coming in, we might need to look at something fair for them. Um, but I appreciate that businesses have been built up on the quota that they have at the moment as well. And business stability is important. So it's how you find a balance of being fair to new people coming in as well. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that that's something that the government are considering, I guess, at the moment. Okay. Um, Audrey. Hi, hi, Karen. Thanks hi. very much. And, and thanks, Elaine. Um, I, I've learned a lot. It's been really interesting to listen to you. Um, I, I've just got a kind of comment to make. It's a little bit um, going off a slight tangent, but one of the things I'm particularly interested in is around food insecurity, food poverty, and the, the work that's going on around 
trying to make healthy, nutritious food available to everyone. Because we know at the moment that, that that's not happening. We've got this amazing rise in food bank use right across the social spectrum. And so my, I suppose what I'm thinking about just as you're, as we're having this discussion is whether or not maybe down the line there are some opportunities to really think about how, um, you know, especially in the context of sort of diversifying and looking at new opportunities, particularly around that sort of end point and the processing sector, if there's a way that we can maybe um, capture um, or make a, a, a stronger link between um, fish, fish, this amazing Scottish fish, fish produce, um, but um, looking at it from the perspective of the agenda around um, healthy eating, healthy lifestyles, health and well-being, which are all sort of interlinked. So I'm just kind of throwing that into the mix a little bit. Well, um, yes, 100%. And that's why we do the festivals every year. To, and, and there's nothing better than seeing the children eating, you know, langoustines are learning how they cook it. Sometimes they've never seen them before. Um, you have a really great asset in the northeast. You've got um, Kat and John Frankiti who work with Seafood Scotland. Um, they go around and they teach a lot of people how to, to cook, you know, whether it's a pot noodle and you're just putting a little bit of fish in it or if you want to make a cullen skink. They do some excellent work um, there and it's something that's very close to my heart. We do a lot of work with um, food banks and, and the community, etc. And catching to give to local community we're just about to start another um another scheme that way so and and also there could be things like working with schools school dinners um those kind of things which are both boosting the domestic market but i think um we need to get supermarkets on board with this our domestic supermarkets quite a lot of them go with accreditation schemes so you sometimes find that they go for sustainability but sometimes the sustainability label isn't very much connected to the socioeconomics of the local area um, and the footprint of maybe just getting from local boats and we really need to work in that branding and certification in local supermarkets as well and get our produce there but 100% if there's anything that we can do to, to start in, improving that kind of knowledge of healthy eating helping people to do it we are all for that very much for it yeah that's a, that's a great topic actually Audrey um, thanks for bringing that in there um we have a comment from Michael Park who says, a great insight from Elaine regarding the fishing industry and our plights. So somebody happy to hear what you're saying. Mary says, it's nae langoustine, they're prans. Well, Mary, you know why they're called langoustine? Because they're the langoustines. Oh, is everybody groaning? Um, <laughs> they're guy big prans. Called them so many different things. <laughs> um, Stephen Calder, are there different issues for the export of fresh fish from the northeast to the EU for processed fish and for live shellfish. Can this be resolved under the Brexit deal with the end of frictionless borders? Are delays because of health inspection certificates an issue that can be overcome? It's quite a few questions in there. It's gonna say it's quite a few questions. <laughs> um, it depends. I mean, the, the major issue is if, if it's fresh fish, um, if it's fresh or live, if it's shellfish, it has to get there within a very quick period of time. Um, so that's kind of, it, it's, we were going from one day uh, basically to get to, to the continent to, to four days, which 
basically means you're spoiling your goods or you're losing your goods so so that's that's terrifying and of course um it is to do with the process um and but there, as i said it's it's so um details we're currently in meetings every single day about this um about the colors of ink that the paperwork involves and it's yeah. so it, it's so meticulous um that it's it's a very long debate to get into but of course the, de the the debate on streamlining the process is something that we really have to look at doing it in this day and age it's very unusual to have everything in paper actually i mean we should be maybe trying to yeah. streamline as much as we can electronically um it, it should be possible um in terms of fresh fish fin fish if we're talking about it depends i mean they, they will face the same issues that we face in going to the continent um and getting there in a timely fashion but i guess um if, if they're frozen fish it's a different it's a different issue it's not as, as critical um yeah. but but we still we're all having problems it's across the board at the moment in terms of getting to the eu yes um christian allard hello christian um are any fishers better off this year than last or should we find out way back into the EU sink or should we find our way back into the EU single market? I would say that this year um, we're not going to, well, I would I would imagine maybe the pelagic sector had finished fishing before a lot of this kicked off and it also depends on where your market has been. So for instance, if you're in the pelagic sector, maybe you're selling to Russia or you know somewhere like that, maybe you won't be as impacted if you have a more diverse market. And um, some people are concentrating more in the Far East, but there's not that many actually. We could do a lot more there. So I wouldn't say anybody's going to be any better off um this year, or, or there'd be very few people where we're, we think everybody's been severely impacted that I know certainly in fishing. Um, I don't think you can see, um, I have to be optimistic, but I think for the next couple of years, it's going to be tricky, even with the annual negotiations, etc. We're not going to see um, a massive benefit. We certainly aren't. In terms of should we find our way back into the single market? Or, I think these are questions for the public and for politicians to answer. I think what we'll do as a fishing association is scenario plan for every, every mm -hmm. eventuality. And try and find the problems and the, the positives in every in every sector. So that's going to be a, a wider debate, I guess, for 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 everyone to take on board. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have um, this is from Andrew Fry. I don't know if it's necessarily a. Oh no, there is a question at the end. So the new normal is not sustainable for businesses. Um, in aquaculture alone, salmon farmer, farmers and mussel farmers have delayed harvest as long as possible, but eventually they will have to come out of the sea and off to market. I imagine it might be similar for fisheries too. If the system is barely working now, how can we expect it to work at full production capacity? Yeah, that's true. It's a massive concern. Um, I think the way I feel at the moment is... I've always looked at it as if things are pretty bad, if things aren't working, it means on the flip side, there's a lot of potential to do better. So when I look at an empty har harbour and I see um, there's not many young people going to the job or there's a, I see that if we do a bit of planning, we can potentially make it a better situation. I certainly think we have to do be looking at things like online marketing. We have to be doing things like the auctions they do in Norway, which are fantastic because what they do is they, they kind of, the, a skipper can upload what his catch is and before he gets to the, the, the harbour, he can have um, a wholesaler waiting on his catch, but he could also have, he can have somebody who's just popped down for their tea and they just want a couple of bits of cod or whatever there too. And this mm -hmm. is all from an online app. 
So I think we've we've been slow to do these things, and I think that's going to be the future. And I think that will help the domestic market too, because yeah. right now I've heard so many people getting in touch with me saying I don't know how to get shellfish. How do to how do I? So I think that's that's a way making it accessible to people, and we're going to just have to move the times, but we're going to have to do it quickly. I think, yeah, um, yeah for sure. Um, but in terms of yeah, the new the, this normal is is not sustainable. I would have to agree, but we're going to have to find new new ways, hopefully for technology and for new investment and new planning to try and make our markets more stable domestically and internationally. Yeah, I mean, I do know, um, you know, the 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 fish fans and the fish manies that that come down certain areas are always, um, you know, it's a bit of a joy for for some communities and some neighbourhoods as well. You know, I've been hearing great stories about how you know. It was a highlight of some some pensioners' weeks for, <clears throat> for when when they had the the fish van come around and they'd be able to get a blether and, and a chat there, particularly during the time of COVID. You know, they'd all be out social distancing, and um, queuing up mm-hmm. to get their fish. Um, but I think as well, you know, in terms of how, you know, we have changed this year quite a lot more online. Um, yep. Certainly, a lot more home deliveries. I've I've gone more home deliveries for, for my shop and etc. Just from a safety standpoint, really. That it would quite be, you know, it would be quite handy if I could have, you know, an app where I could just order that fresh fish on there and have that delivery. And I know that, you know, a few local businesses have started doing that and and offering that service um, during COVID as well. So I think probably during this time of huge transitions with Brexit and with COVID, there, it always um, gets you thinking out of that, you know, the narrative that you've always kind of been in. So it will be quite exciting to see how that's taken forward and, and used. Um, Ross, was the fishing industry sacrificed by the UK government in order to push through their Brexit? That's quite a blunt, straightforward question. I don't know if you want to answer that one, Ali. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm not in the UK government, so I can't answer that. I don't know what was going on with those trade deals. Um, but what I would say going forward is what I've seen over the last few weeks, which is, is very positive, is that we have more practical people around the table now with both governments. We have a task force where Fergus Ewing is is there um, as well as the UK government now, and they're trying to work together to get over those 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 issues. I would have liked to see that happen in a, a more joined up way before. But what you find is quite a lot of the practical people aren't always around the table at the right times. Um, and they could have pointed out the issues or the, the traps, like somebody mentioned depuration. You know, somebody could, I'm, I'm sure somebody involved in that field would have known that would have been an issue. Um, so it's just getting the right people around the table to make sure that some, I think sometimes we, we, we lack that practical knowledge. Um, do I think it's been sold out? Well, I don't think anybody's happy with the deal um, in terms of, I, I, I think, I think it's a lot to do with the practicalities as well. I think we would have rather had a grace period at least um, till I was, you know, to, to, to be able to to get the, they're not nickels, I think I've said this before, to, to, to work our way through the issues the same way that France will be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, we've now asked for that with the Northern, Northern Ireland, but I do think I would be surprised if the EU come back and ask us for a longer period to work through when it's their turn to do so, because we, we need better planning. And we need people to listen to the people at the job. That's what we need. And then I think there would be less issues with sellouts or lack of understanding if people understood the job at a practical level. 
what, what I would say to Ross, you know, I'll come in this angle from a, from a politician's point of view. I think, you know, absolutely there maybe wasn't the right people there given the, <clears throat> the, the right knowledge that was needed. And a lot of things were, um, were left out. A lot of things were left out and maybe, you know, my feeling is a lot of things were pushed to the side to get this through and get this through rapidly. And, you know, it's not just our, our fishing industry. I think it has been devastating for that. I think there was promises made that weren't kept, um, which is very apparent. And the communication that I've had with skippers and people within that industry are extremely irate um, and they really do feel let down. And we also, you know, we're seeing in the news as well, we're talking about fishing today, but also, you know, the music and arts industry, the fashion industry, even we heard yesterday, are all having um, lots of problems with this. So um, I think I think the best analogy I ever heard is when you're leaving a, a club, it's um, as if we built a village in Lego. And, and we had the blue bricks and Spain had the red bricks and, you know, oh, yeah. France had the green ones. And and, and us saying, right, we're, we're going to take back our blue bricks is, is fine in principle, but it's how many things that's attached to. And there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of unknown consequences. Um, and everyone may be trying their very best, but those on, you can't just demolish <laughs> without there being implications. And I think that's, 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 really that's the analogy. issue. That is a really good analogy, actually. Yeah, I like that. I've got a very visual mind, so I like I like my analogies. <laughs> yes, Ross, I agree. There was promises made that they knew they, they couldn't keep, though. So, yeah, I think that's political opinion as well. So again, coming from my point of view, <clears throat> I'm agreeing with you there. Um, but I think this has been a really um, constructive chat. Um, has anybody else got any questions? I think the questions have died down. A little bit but um, I really want to thank you for coming Elaine because I think you know in my mind at this at this moment in time you know there, there's always going to be a lot of pointing figures fingers you know and I, of course that's the that's the nature of the job that I'm in and that I'm going in as well but what I really want to do is have this uh, positive constructive look at how we can really you know deal with the situation that we are in right now at this moment in time and where we can move forward from it. Um, because I think if we're just constantly spinning on our heels um, and not really getting anywhere, I don't think it's helpful for anyone. And, you know, it's, it, as you say, people have um, different views on different things and, you know, voted for all kinds of different things and, and a different makeup of that. You know, we, we do have, you know, within the fishing industry, people that, that, you know, perhaps voted to stay a part of the UK and um, voted for Brexit. But we also have those that um, wanted to stay in the UK and the EU. And we had people who wanted, um, you know, independence, but out the EU. There's such a, a Everything in between. Everything, everything in, between. in between. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Some people who just didn't vote. I mean, th th this is the thing. They, they didn't go into politics. They're fishermen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, um, and, and certainly th that's what I see every day. I don't see a blanket and for me it's always like asking how like I think I said earlier on how does someone with brown hair vote I don't know they, they vote all different uh you know they vote all different ways for different reasons and I think that's good if if one thing is coming out of that at least that there's a narrative now that's coming out which is I think more reflective that some people had concerns that some people want to work through these and I think you're right we keep the blaming at this stage won't help us the practical planning is going to help us um, because at the end of the day, we want to see a nation that's making the most of its asset and it's a national asset.
Absolutely. Um, you know. I mean, that, that's the thing. It is a national asset and part of, you know, what I said before, being our history and our culture as well. And we really need to be nurturing that and doing what we can to make sure that the, you know, going forward that we can do as much as we can to support it. Um, I think that's, you know, vitally important. Um, so we've had a message saying excellent discussion. So that's great. I'm glad. I hope everybody had a great time um, listening. Um, and, and thank you everybody for coming along on a, on a Thursday evening um, to join in with our, with our fishing chat. And thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Indie Live Radio, and that was the latest in our Yes Group Spotlight series. It was called What Now for the Fishing Industry with the Aberdeen Independence Movement, conversation between Elaine White of the Clyde Fishing Association and Karen Adam, MSP. If you want to find out more about AIM, the Aberdeen Independence Movement, you'll find them on Twitter and also on Facebook. If you live up that way, I'm sure they'd be very pleased to have you join in their meetings. And once again, here at Indie Live Radio, thank you very much to the Aberdeen Independence Movement for letting us rebroadcast your meeting.